Hey, this is Kate. Welcome to Two Pastors Take a Walk and Make a Podcast. This is Yolando, and as always, we're talking about what is astonishing us, what we're thinking about, and what we're preaching. And today we are podcasting from my house at my very, very creaky table. So it is inevitable at some point I'm going to lean my elbows on this table and it's going to creak and just sorry. Pre-sorry. I'm pre-apologizing. That's a that is not a theological concept, but it is a recording concept. Anyway, friend, what is astonishing you? Well, Sunday, I had what seemed in the moment to be a just a major sermon fail, right? Preachers listening I'm not, to I'm this, I'm unfamiliar. Uh, Tell yeah, me more. You've never, you've Tell never me more. That. What does that feel like? Preachers listening to this like. will oh. understand. Others may not quite understand at first, but um, you know, in the time of study and preparation for preaching, I thought what I had this fantastic idea. I was excited about it. I was energized by it. Um, we were preaching the text uh, from Acts 2. They devoted themselves to the apostles, teaching the breaking of bread and prayer. Can and I just say that I have learned to dread the most Uh-oh. the Sundays where I'm really excited I about it, right? Like I have I learned... so excited about it, and it just... It does not over like portend good, right? Like I'll be like, oh my gosh, this is so amazing. I've seen this thing. It's so important. I can't wait. And then I just inevitably biff it on those Sundays. And it's bitter. I mean, if it's I ever such... biffed a sermon, which I never have, tell me more what that's like. What, <laughs> what is that's that like? like? You want to know tell what that's like? Yes. Well, let me tell you what that's like. I had this fantastic idea um, and using um, uh, the primary image of Lewis and Clark on their adventures going to... Um, Wait, can you not out. talk about that anymore? Because I totally want to steal it for okay, this week. <laughs> And some people from my church might be listening to this. So, I mean, I'm going to credit you. I'm going to give you credit. No, don't credit me. Credit I um, just, I just Tom don't want you to un, un, Anyway, I'm sorry. Yes. Well, so I had this fantastic illustration that I thought just really fit great. where we are as a church, where our society is. And it met us at the place of the, the text in Acts. And um, it's so discouraging to see people asleep or to see people like wrestling with their sleep. You know, I don't know what's worse to see someone sleeping or see someone wrestling with not falling asleep. And it's, I don't take it personally, but it's discouraging in a way that um, I'm trying not to make this sound like an ego thing because it really isn't. You, you want to, you, you, you want to help. You want to feel like well, you are a part of advancing the mission correct. of the church. And there's there's some ego wrapped in well, it as I well. Mean, and I think the reality is like when you stand up to preach on Sunday, when a person stands up to preach on Sunday and and does it the way we do it. So you're not like consulting the book to figure out what you're allowed to say, right? Like you are really wrestling with the text and trying to dig down to a place of like real truth and real like what would I die to say about this text right so like you're not standing up there and reading the phone book like you are saying like 
This is of ultimate importance. Right. And this is me. Like this is my heart for Jesus. This is everything I know about Jesus. This is what I sought the Lord about. This is what I have dedicated my life to. So like the preaching moment does not exist to stroke our egos, correct? but also you can't not take it personally because it is literally the most sacred and personal thing about you. And so that's just real. And on Sunday, while we were singing our opening praise songs, I heard the Holy Spirit say to me, when you get about halfway through the sermon, you're at the point of really talking about the text from Acts 2. I don't want you to look at your notes. Just kind of close your notebook and go from there. And I was really wrestling with that. And so ultimately, I decided to do it. Like, But before we finished singing, I was like, I'm going to do that. I'm going to be obedient. And so I was feeling extra. I, I wish people could see my face right now. <laughs> I was feeling extra in the spirit. It's like, who knows what the Holy Spirit is going to lead me to say. Um, and so, and I told, I, I, I preached through my manuscript till about halfway. And then I said to the congregation, okay, earlier when we were singing, the Holy Spirit told me to leave my notes at this point and just talk to you about this text. Can I just say, all I'm thinking right now is, Please don't ask me to do that, God. 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 Please, 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 please don't ask me to do that, God. That is like, that is like, like taking off the harness. Listen, it was scary. And nothing, I don't want to say nothing <laughs> happened. That was, that's terrible. But it was I felt like everyone in the room, after I had announced, the Holy Spirit told me to close my notes and just, like, there was this heightened, okay, he's about to come with it. And afterwards, in the room, it's just kind of, wah, wah, wah. Well, so I have to say two things. I mean, we talked about this on our walk yes. beforehand. And I think what I was grasping for that now I have, I mean, like we've talked a lot before about how worship is not... It's a communal act, right? Like we are together with the congregation, primarily the congregation. Like when we are leading worship, we are leading people to worship. So we're creating something like what Heschel would say, like a cathedral in time, this ephemeral real thing that is only going to exist in this place and in this moment. And then will never be visible or happen ever again. So it's this extraordinary thing, but it happens in partnership. It's not something that we create and then other people watch, right? It's a communal act. And so the way that people show up to worship, like the level of maturity they bring into the room and the level of vulnerability. Energy. I mean, right. And I really, like if people come to the worshiping moment, whether that's in a sanctuary or on a screen, but if you come to the worshiping moment earnestly seeking God, you will you will find, right? Like I really believe that. And then to the to the extent that people in the space, you know, what in time or place are earnestly seeking God, it just changes it just changes things. It really does. So I would say like, yeah, it is, it's hard when, um, 
you are when people are not with you, even if their bodies are in the space, they're not. And and also on the one hand, like the and you're not doing this, but I know people who do this. You're not doing this. Like the reaction is to say, like, well, these people aren't pulling their weight, and that's stupid. I mean, the reality is we are the worship leaders, so it is our job to teach and equip and lead. And if people aren't able to fully participate in the way that we think God is calling and equipping us to do that, then it's our responsibility not yes. to not to judge them. The last them thing I or, want to do is blame correct. my sermon fail on the people. Correct. <laughs> right. But also, I mean, the reality is it is a communal act. Like it, you know, and I think really the honest thing about like, we'll say like it takes two people to be in a marriage. Like it takes a congregation and a preacher. And like, I can tell a difference in worship based on which people are in the room. Right. And it's not like God has favorites. It's, I mean, like there are just some people who come to worship and they're not necessarily the loudest people or the most visible people in the room like that. Right. And some of those people are coming to for reals worship. And right now they're not in the physical space, but they're on the live stream and like, it makes a difference, right? But I just, like, I both really want to affirm that. And also, the thing that I was trying to think of that was on the corner of my mind on our walk is I, it makes me think of that moment where, like, Jesus is trying to worship in the Garden of Gethsemane and the disciples are overwhelmed and so they hide and sleep, right? And I just think that right now, wow. that's not a thing. And that's not wow. a diss on people who are in the room that day. I just think that right now, in general, people are so overwhelmed. And so, I mean, that's why we're doing this sermon series on, like, remember your spirit. Like, I do think that we, like, there can just be an element of, like, if you are in that moment, like, I'm going to go for this. People hide in in any way that they can hide and people are lulled into sleep and it's an avoidance tactic and so i mean well that's a good um text uh, a good good scripture i mean and it's good to think yeah, about like really jesus, if, lovely right and if jesus can have a moment where like jesus is not connecting and that does not mean jesus is unfaithful and it doesn't mean that the holy spirit isn't able to do I mean, it's just like that's their humanity in that moment. And like Jesus is both disappointed and also not surprised. Right? Well, here's what's astonishing me. Is that I sorry, that's astonishing how many times I'm interrupting you today to even get to your <laughs> astonishment. I'm sorry. And is it astonishing you that I interrupt you to apologize for interrupting you? Because that's just how I roll. I'm sorry. I'm just gonna keep it moving. <laughs> I was editing uh, the sermon last night uh, to upload it to our YouTube channel. And um, I was listening to it. And I was like, you know what? Not as bad as I thought. Mm-hmm. And when I like really listened, there were people in the room mm-hmm. talking back to me. In the preaching moment, I heard none of that. Okay, well, you define to people who might not know what you mean by talking back. Talking back as in, amen, good word preacher, that's right. Participating you know, in the yes, service, it, yes. Right, and um, it's like I did not hear that in the preaching moment. And so in listening to it again, in editing it, I was just astonished yeah. in the gap, right? On Sunday morning, it felt like 
a total bomb, total failure. Putting it up on YouTube, I was like, uh, not not terrible. Right. I, I think that's really helpful to say, like, we don't deny our feelings, and it's not that our feelings are unimportant, but our feelings can just be really deceptive. Absolutely. Because one of the reasons I prefer never to listen to my sermons ever again is because while the terrible ones are rarely as terrible as I felt that they were, the good ones are never as good as I thought they were either, right? So, I mean, I just think, and that makes sense, right? Because this isn't a static piece of, I mean, it's a it's a dynamic interact. It's a spiritual. Well, and I think this portal. is where it connects connects with everyone, preachers and non preachers, is that we all are living, moving, and having being in a way that sometimes um, things just seem to fall into place and they connect, and we feel like we're switched on. Mm -hmm. And at other times. Nothing seems to work. It just, everything we touch seems to just go downhill, but that doesn't mean it's trash. That doesn't mean God right. isn't using it. And it's hard to wrestle with those feelings of not living up to what you want to live up to. But the reality is the scripture is true that all things work for good. Well, and I think it's just really important that on the one hand, again, like we can discern some things through our feelings, but just, I mean, like we joke about how for other people, you determine what truth is by how it makes you feel. So if it makes me feel good, it's true. And if it makes me feel bad, it's a lie. That's other people, obviously not you or me. And it's important that we don't do the same thing with faithfulness, right? Like if something feels good and feels like I'm great at it, then it must be faithful that I'm doing it. And if something yeah. feels hard and embarrassing and pathetic, that must mean that it's unfaithful to do it. Like that's one way that I think our denominational home family, the PCUSA can get really stuck because there are some things that it feels really good to do that we're really excellent at. And we're sort of like, flexing about how great we are and and they maybe they were faithful and and fruitful in the past but they no longer are but because we enjoy doing them and because we experience ourselves as, as so gifted in these things we hold on to them and we and we despise you know a call to do something that doesn't feel good to do and doesn't feel like we're experts at and so I just, I mean, it's just really hard. I don't want to be in a community. Well, Pete Scazzaro, who I agree with 92% of the time, um, he talks about like being an emotionally healthy church. Like the point isn't to deny your emotions and the point isn't to say some emotions are okay to feel and some aren't and some are signs of faithfulness and some are signs of faithfulness or faithlessness or that we should only feel X way. But we so all emotions are a gift from God and all of them are appropriate and just part of being human. And there's no point in denying that, but we can strive to be emotionally healthy yes. and we can strive to say, instead of being controlled by our emotions to just grow in health and instead of just being led around by the nose by them. So that's good. Yeah. That's good. Well, what's astonishing you? I'm live three things that are astonishing three me. Oh, three, okay. one, right. two, three things. Um, I hope I can remember them all now. Uh, well, the first thing that is astonishing me um, is that on to, on Wednesday, on tomorrow, um, I, 
Colin and I will be married for 20 years. Wow. 20 wow. years, which is amazing because I'm so young and pretty. <laughs> how, how is this possible? Uh, so I don't know. I, I am just... You know, I don't think people know how funny you are. <laughs> I know. Well, I think that. Um, I just... I don't know. I'm, I'm never allowed to talk about Colin in the preaching moment ever. Um, but he never listens he never- to this podcast. <laughs> so... <laughs> too bad for him <laughs> like, um, he'll never know and if he yeah he should have said so <laughs> um so no but I just um I'm really grateful for my marriage I'm really aware I think everyone walks into marriage with this sense of like we got this and um hmm. which is I think one of those cases where it's really helpful to be naive um and I I mean, I just feel extraordinarily um, humbled by the gift of my marriage. I, it is one of the places in my life where at the time I didn't realize it, but looking back, I can just see how clearly I was led slash drug by the Holy Spirit just because I, I had no idea um, how what a gift it would be to be married to this particular person. And frankly, a lot of things that in the beginning I felt like I was willing to overlook have, have become the things that have, have brought the most value and balance and maturity to me as a person. And so I'm, I'm just really grateful for that. And I, um, and I also, sorry, my phone is ringing. I also, um, I just don't, I, I don't take a second of it for granted. Like, I don't feel like, um, I, if I wish that we would stop defining marriages with the word successful in front of them, because I just think that's really unhelpful. Um, and in a way that like, I do think that marriage is a spiritual, um, gift from God and the covenant of marriage is a way that I grow and learn and, and glorify God and am, ministered to by God. And so success just isn't helpful. Um, a metric, like nothing in the church can be helpfully described as successful. Um, but I'm very aware just to the extent that, um, our marriage has been healthy, that that has just been a pure manifestation of the grace of God and has happened way more often in spite of me than because of me. And I, and I'm also just aware that I think going into marriage, you think like, well, if you make it to 20 years, then you're you're golden. And I don't, I just, I know that's not true experientially watching other people who I, um, just respect and admire that there's no, there's, there aren't any guarantees. So no matter what happens in the future, I'm, I'm grateful for the present and the gift of our life together. And I don't know. I, and also just like how quick 20 years goes, like, um, and, and just what a strange thing. Like, I don't feel like a person who should have been married for 20 years. Um, and I, whatever, I'm 46. Like, I refuse to, I'm not ashamed of how old I am. But I, you know, so I don't know. That, it, it's just an extraordinary thing. And I am astonished by it. And part of this moment is to, like, notice the things in your life that sure. are clearly a manifestation sure. of the glory of grace and God. Sure. And so that, that's one of them. And, and Colin is not a person he's an introvert. So that that's God's joke on him to be married to me. And, um, he is not like people will often come to me in the church. who have been attending for a while and be like, Oh, but 
does your husband come to church? And I'm like, yep, he's there every week. <laughs> you just, <laughs> you won't notice him because he doesn't, he does not want a visible role. Um, and, and he's an introvert. And also I just know that who I am able to be in the context of my ministry has everything to do with just the grounding of, of our partnership and covenant relationship Introverts are powerful people. I mean, you are the world people. needs introverts. Right. right. Well, I just, I, I'm just really grateful and just for the wisdom that he has. And yeah, when I do premarital counseling, one of the things that um, surprises couples is when I begin to talk to them about um, marriage as an environment. Um, for God's sanctification, that God will use your partner to grow you and not in the, you know, not always in the smooth, lovely, you know, wonderful, nice path of gradual growth. But sometimes it's, you know, you're both like sandpaper and you're, you're smoothing out each other's rough edges, but God is in that growing, refining, changing and some things you only see in retrospect. Yeah. Which is why I think sometimes it's important to say, to like rest this definition of whatever labeling marriages, successes, and failures, because if we put it in the context of marriage as a covenant and a, like a place of sanctification, then, then even marriages that people would label failures can become Absolutely. places where we are sanctified. And like we all know that in our spiritual growth, some of our biggest places of maturity come not from like these mountaintop aesthetic things that we would experiences that we choose over and over again, but from places of real loss and pain and weakness and failure that we really discover. And so I, I mean, I totally agree with that. And I think so often when we talk about marriage being a place where people grow spiritually, it it has been infected by this hierarchical patriarchical image of like Mm -hmm. the husband needs to lead the family and it's a lead from a place of superiority. If one more person asks me, (laughs) I, I, I'm really serious. I, I think I might say something I regret, but if one more person asks me, if Adam had just been a stronger man, could we have avoided the yeah. fall? And I'm like, yeah. that, that's that's not what the text is about. That's not what the text is pointing to. And so we 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 put this patriarchal template right. on we read the text it into the text and on our lives. And so yeah, it it is damaging to the idea of being in partnership well and of mutual submission right and of giving up lives for one another and i i mean i feel sad for women who are yoked to men who don't see them as fully equal um but i also feel incredibly sorry for men who are yoked to women to whom they feel superior because even if that's quote working for them on the surface, what they've lost is actually what the gift of marriage is, which is, you know, a help meet and a cleaving and, you know, an ebber and this idea of a person where you can be vulnerable and you can, um, find real truth and, and, you know, that you, that you have a, a friend and a covenant partner and a, a person who, is, you know, equally as gifted and screwed up as you are. And there's this mutual 
you know, continual choosing. So, um, so yeah, I'm, I'm grateful for all of it. And I will say, you know, I, I am married to someone who is such a strong man that he is not threatened by my strength. And I'm grateful for that. And I think it's just a really hard thing that, you know, because, you know, I know how people might look from the outside and make assumptions based on how we both show up in the world. And I just think that that's a a sad thing that the people I know who have real strength, holy strength, do not use that to try to make other people small. Mm. Um, And so I just think, you know, it takes an incredibly, um, incredibly strong man to not be threatened by a strong woman and to see that as an asset and not as a liability. And I'm just grateful to be married to a strong man. Colin would die if he listened to this podcast (laughs) because I'm breaking all of our foundational rules. The foundational rule of our marriage is I am never allowed to mention him from the pulpit, which I did one time, like wait, like when I was still in seminary and he was like, that's your one chance. And if you say my name in a sermon again, I will never come to church with you ever again. And I was like, oh, I think he means it. (laughs) So I've never done it. But again, he He does not listen to this podcast and he never told me. He never told you not to. Everybody, to the tens of people who are listening to this podcast, please do not mention it to my husband. Okay? Thanks. Cool. So what else is astonishing? Well, now now I'll save it for another time. Like that that was more than I intended to say. That was good though. You know how it is. Like I just open my mouth and stuff comes out and I, I don't even know. Um, so. I, I, I like that um, you are a self-aware extrovert. <laughs> I know. There are some extroverts who are not aware mm. of their um, um, their tendency to, you know. Well, I mean, introverts have flaws too, but I what? agree that extroverts have some what? that are particularly, can be not conducive to... I have to no idea what you're talking about. ...real koinonia, but as my friend Rebecca will often say, is like, just because you know something, you still have to do it. Like, mm. just because you know you're prone to interrupting and acknowledging it is great, but you still have to stop interrupting. And like, there comes a point where knowing doesn't make it cute. Anyway. So let's talk about what we're both thinking we're about. we're both it's thinking the about. same thing. Because I called you last week and I was like, I we do this podcast, we try to early in the week. And then as the week moves on, stuff happens in the world and I'm like, shoot, I wish we'd talked about this. And then we come to the next Tuesday and I think, oh, there was something I want to talk about, but it's gone now. So I called you last week last and I week. was like, I just found out about the situation and I really want to talk about it. Don't let me forget. And then this morning I had forgotten. So I'm really glad that you did it because yes. Um, so we are thinking about uh, Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis. Which I keep it, accidentally calling Bedlam ba- the Baptist Church, which I actually think is, as they say, a Freudian slip. Yes. But it's Bethlehem, Bethlehem Baptist, not Bedlam Baptist Church. For over 30 years, that church was pastored by John Piper. If you are in the um, evangelical, conservative evangelical world, if you have any connection to the um, young, restless, and reformed movement. Then he's your daddy. Then he is um, (laughs) 
uh, seen as a father of those. I'm, uh, I'm going to be pretty <laughs> irreverent today, which I really feel like is a fruit of the spirit in this particular conversation. So anyway. Very good. Well, yes. Um, so John Piper, after 30 years of pastoring this church that now has a seminary, uh, a school for training pastors connected to it. Accredited. <laughs> He retired after 30 years, and they named his successor, uh, a man by the name of Jason Mayer, Jason Meyer, and um, this pastor recently resigned. Um, We should say, this is a church with multiple sites, so he was the successor at the urban... The urban Minneapolis campus. Mm -hmm. And this is a very influential um, church. Um, and Piper is no longer leading this church, but correct. he is still in the he movement. Has, right. He and he has a website called Desiring God, yes. and he. I mean, he is he was a instrumental in the um, the whole biblical womanhood, manhood, manhood and womanhood, the Council movement. for Biblical Manhood yes, and Womanhood, yes. and the Gospel Coalition. So um, part yes. of Lots of us are listening to this rise and fall of Mars Hill thing, and to the extent that that is an outgrowth of the Council for Biblical Manhood and Womanhood, then that is part of the mess of that, and Piper is not... I mean, it's part of the people who have to accept some responsibility for all of of that. So So, uh, someone connected to the seminary... uh, the president. A, the president gave a lecture or preached a sermon. And wrote an article. Wrote an article. I, I also heard him talk about it as well. Um, well, and put it in context. Like, it matters that this church is in Minneapolis. That's part of the story. Yes. So can you put that yes. in context for Well, people? it's all, um, you know, in, in churches there at, at, across the country are seeking to respond to the Black Lives Matter movement. And, and the Black Lives Matter movement there. started, yes. really, in Minneapolis. Yes. And um, it is um, an urban, historically white congregation, and so, but they're they're having to um, face um, issues of systemic racism because they are an urban congregation. Right, and let's just why do they have to face those issues? I'll, I will. Part of the thing, as I see it, is that a lot of white evangelical churches don't have a problem with the power structures as they are because they tend to have a lot of power and they don't really have a problem with the carnage and injustice in the street, not because they're heartless, but because they believe a very convenient truth that it's not happening to anybody who matters. Right. So that's why it's the, if you would only comply, right. So they would not look at a George Floyd and say, it doesn't matter that he died. They would they would not even be okay with, say, a Candace Owen, who would say, essentially, his life is trash and it's his own fault he's dead. But they would say, you know what, the systems are basically working, it, and, and this is just what happens when people don't participate in the systems in an appropriate way. So they don't they don't have a problem with the way things are. What they have a problem with is with the way things look. And by that, I don't mean what it looks like to have police murdering people on the streets because they've got, a, they've got an explanation for that. What, what they have a problem was with the way it looks inside their congregations, i.e., if the gospel is true, that 
you know, people of every nation and tongue, and that, you know, there is no more Jew, Greek, slave, free, male, female, then they go into their congregations, and their congregations are predominantly white and culturally white. And the problem is, it looks like they're racist, right? Like, that's what they're sensitive to, is the fact that they're saying, we're not racist, we proclaim a God who calls all peoples and nations but we know that in we look around in our congregations and we don't see all those people here on Sunday morning. And so we have to figure out why that is, not because we particularly think we have a problem, but because it looks like we have a problem. It looks like we're hypocrites or even worse, it looks like we're racist. And so we need to figure out what to do about the appearance yes. in our congregations. But we don't want to change anything in our congregations or how we see the world or how we preach the gospel. Yes. And, you know, over the past year, there have been people in the same movement, prominent pastors like Matt Chandler in um, Texas and um, J.D. Greer, who was the president of the Southern Baptist um, Convention um, here in North Carolina. Uh, They made just simple, moderate very moderate statements opposing systemic racism and the backlash that they received was surprising. Well, actually not surprising to me, surprising to them. Right. And so in this congregation at Bethlehem Baptist, the president of the seminary connected to this congregation um, has come out saying that there is um, an unbiblical empathy that is spreading across the country as people uh, um, uh, they're, they're con- contact empath- with people in the Me Too movement, the Black Lives Matter movement, and they're getting too emotionally involved, connected with uh, the people in those movements, and it is undermining the truth of Scripture. So, I mean, so two things. I would say, I, I want to say clearly... Which I, is bananas. W- Yes. Well, we're going to get to that. (laughs) But I I just feel like I'm still in the setup phase right now. I I just want to say everything that I said about that church and churches like it having a problem with how they appear but not wanting to change anything, I think also can be said about 99% of the churches in our denomination, right? So I want to be clear that I don't think that this level – of hypocrisy is a them problem. I think it is largely a human problem. So I will own that I also oftentimes just want to fix the appearance of something without doing the scary and dangerous work of getting curious about if this isn't so, why does it look like this? Right. And so I think that what was happening, particularly on that urban campus is I think that there were a lot of people and people who were successor, that the pastor who's the successor of John Piper, who who really did was leaning into the idea of like, hey, if we are a pro-life church, and if we are a church who lives in a what might be labeled a majority 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 minority community, and if we are a people of the gospel in the way that we say we are, and if we believe the things that we sincerely believe about the diversity of the kingdom of heaven, the way that we say that we do, then why are we mostly white on Sunday? Like, why does our congregation not look like our neighborhood, right? Like, why? Which is the question that 
all of us should be asking all the time, right? And I, I think what happened is that the pastor of that congregation did what I think is appropriate, which is he went out and started not talking about people, but to people. Absolutely. Yep. And so he started talking to neighbors of this church about their lived experience being a black person or a person of color in this city and what it was like. And then that provoked in him empathy. And he started telling people in his congregation, you know, this is what it's like to be our neighbor in a black or brown body. And that started making people inside the congregation feel uncomfortable because it disrupted their worldview, which is, by the way, what the gospel exists to do, right? And and then he, the pastor, started getting accused of coddling people. He was a coddler, which is also just an interesting thing to me that that's like that's language from within that community that he is being unfaithful and a a bad pastor slash shepherd because he's coddling people and I think it's interesting like you know going back to how everybody hated that gentle and lowly book like why are we offended by language of tenderness and gentleness like why have we weaponized yeah their whole perspective is on their version of truth so anything that gets away from their truth is a soft coddling you're you 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 lack the courage to stand for what they believe is true well and i also just think not not just their read of scripture um, and it's their politics and their it's culture, their, yes. right? Their culture is we want to be a culture where people ha- are take responsibility and they're driven and they work hard and they're successful. And so what we want to, be- I mean, you believe in, I mean, you believe in the myth of America, not the truth of the gospel. So this, the story that you're trying to maintain in this community is this is a Christian nation and everybody here who deserves success gets it. Right. This is why these um, like Christian healthcare co-ops are so seductive, because essentially what they say is you can pay less for healthcare because healthcare for people who are healthy and good stewards of their body is not that expensive. So you can get together with other good people like you who are going to stay healthy, and then it's not going to cost very much for us to get the care that we need. And then all those bums and losers and drug abusers and fatsos who don't deserve good healthcare and who are ruining our, you know, they can just, whatever, they can have these high premiums, but we are going to just take care of ourselves and it's going to be fine and we'll be able to save our money. And then people get into them and they realize like, oh crap, now I have a condition. All of a sudden when I need help, I turn to this place and they say to me like, well, actually it's your fault you have diabetes because your lifestyle is unhealthy or it's your fault that you, you know, this is whatever. I mean, but again, it's just this myth of like bad things happen to people who deserve it. Right. And people who make good choices get good outcomes, and that's how God has organized the world. And anybody who thinks that is not reading the Bible, and particularly not reading the story of the life of Jesus, but whatever, I get that if that is the world that you're in, and that's what every voice tells you, every voice of authority, and you're taught to prize human authority more than the revelation of Scripture, and you're taught not to trust Ironically, for people who pride themselves on being young, restless, and reformed, you're taught not to trust 
your own ability to discern truth in partnership with the Holy Spirit. You're taught to put your trust in this hierarchy and the people at the top are going to tell you what this means. And so when people talk about how they believe in the truth of scripture or that, like, I believe that all of scripture is anointed and I believe in the inerrancy of scripture, what they really are saying is I believe in the inerrancy of my leaders, right? Like I believe that what people have taught me about scripture is inerrant, not scripture itself. And then there's whole parts of scripture that the people shouting at you from the pulpit just never mention. And you don't, you don't even know it because you're not taught to read scripture for yourself and you are not taught to question and you are not taught to do or think anything that would disturb the very comfortable worldview that tells people that they can do whatever they want, that their sins don't offend God. And that what really pleases God is for you to make a lot of money and buy a lake house. Mm. And so this pastor started talking to neighbors and trying to preach and share the lived experience of neighbors. And he got accused of being a coddler and of being like woke and of being too empathetic and, and, and other pastors, interestingly in suburban, the suburban campuses of the church were the ones who were pushing for him to get ousted um, which is also interesting, like they're living in a community where they are up against every day the reality of like, hey, if we're a neighbor loving church, then how come our neighbors are having such a very different experience of life than we are? And how come we are not in relationship with them? Like it was just harder for them to ignore that reality. And and kudos to the pastor who who risked this huge platform and who like would rather resign than, you know, cop to that party line. But I mean, it makes sense to me that people at a distance in the suburbs whose neighbors all by function of, you know, cost and, you know, real estate codes are having, are like them. So it's easy just to be like, no, 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 you'd be okay if you made better choices and, you know, if you'd only complied, like all these people walking around without their masks under mask mandates, but talking about how, if people only complied with the police, they'd be alive today. I mean, like it just, we, um, so anyway. So the president of the seminary was sort of supporting this idea that the pastor resigned because he was a coddler and because he was too woke and because he was too empathetic. And the president of the seminary wrote an article and probably preached as well and said, yeah, empathy is a sin. Empathy is something that comes from the culture and culture in this context means bad, fallen, whore of Babylon culture. And we are not empathetic. We're well, to be sympathetic. Sympathetic, which is super interesting because sympathy, I mean. Says ha- I just, I feel for, you're, you're, you're in pain and I feel for you because you're in pain. And I'm different than you, right? Yes. Like I have sympathy for a person beneath me who is, has just a, a crappy life by their own part. But empathy says like, no, you're my brother. We're in the same boat. Like what happened to you could have happened to me. Like we're not different. Like I, I'm entering into your pain with you. I'm sharing your lot with you. I'm identifying with you. Sympathy says I'm identifying as I'm not you, but I feel bad for you. Right. And sympathy allows you to not do anything, not change anything, not risk anything. It's like, those religious leaders who saw 
um, the man in the parable of the Good Samaritan uh, robbed and beaten, and they could say, oh, I feel for him. Oh, what a horrible thing, and just keep on walking. And I didn't do it. And I didn't do it. Right. But like... empathy to feel with is going to move you to do something, to change something. And so we should not be surprised when people who benefit from a racist, sexist system say, okay, yes, we want to have sympathy. We feel bad that people are suffering, but we don't want to have empathy because it means that we are under a moral obligation to do something, to change something. Right, then we would have to be like the Good Samaritan who says, what do I have and how can I leverage it yes. to be in real life giving community And with to you? say that empathy is a sin. Which is not just... us. I just want to say, that's not us exaggerating, right? Like we are not using hyperbole. That is literally the that's theological the doctrine yes. Yes. is empathy, empathy is, is a sin. sin. Yes. And to say that and just, you know, my first thought was, well, that's just from the devil, <laughs> right? That is... That is well, that's an not hyperbole evil. either. That is an evil. Uh, our whole belief in the incarnation of God in Jesus Christ says that Jesus did not simply have sympathy for us, right? Poor humanity, um, under the bondage of sin and death, I feel for them. Right. right? But Jesus left heaven was born as a vulnerable baby. Did not consider equality of God yes. to be an advantage to use for himself, but leveraged Humbled that himself, to come down. Became a servant. Right. And even obedient to the point unto death. Of death on a cross. Death on a even cross. Even death on a cross. So that, yes. yeah. And so I, I mean, I just think it's really interesting. And we were talking on the walk, like, you know, in this, I mean, again, I just want to reiterate my my denominational background, my own congregation. Like, I'm not saying that I do not have work to do, <laughs> that I do not have sin to overcome, that I do not need um, repentance and redeeming every day, right? And, and honestly, it's that awareness of your own brokenness and your fearfulness of hypocrisy that will really encourage you to keep your mouth shut because you really want to say like, well, who, who am I, who am I to judge another man's servant? Right? Like I, I, they're not my servants, obviously they're God's servants. So who am I to say anything? But also I just think it is important that these are people with a huge platform and with a huge, a lot of authority, ironically in the culture, and they are wittingly or unwittingly doing what the enemy always has people do, which is show up and not say, come with me and let's do evil together, but to, to show up and say, like, to clo be clothed in light and to s essentially say, no, the way the world is is the way that God wants it to be, at least until God blows it up, and your job is just to, like, get what you can for yourself and then glorify God with it. And instead of the reality, which is that God is doing a new thing here and now of redeeming this world, and we are called to surrender all, even our lives, and to use what we have by the power of the Spirit to be a part of the rebuilding, reimagining, reconstruction work that God is doing. And to imagine, like, like your sermon illustration, that, that what is lying before us 
is wholly different than what is behind us. And so all of these, and, and the thing that I, I mean, especially in this season that I think is so different is we just keep thinking like, well, if we get the right humans in charge, like if we just get the right hierarchy and the right kind of authority and the right patriarchy, like then it'll all fall into order because we believe in that structure. And God is calling us to something wholly new where God alone is king and, you know, where people don't do the right thing because they are both mo- because of the carrot and stick of the people in charge, but people do the right thing because they no longer have hearts of stone, but hearts of flesh and the covenant is written on each one of them. And, and, and we have this just different kind of way of being community and different kind of way of, hmm, ironically, I mean, John Piper talks about, you know, Christian hedonism and how like to want things and to desire things is not, of the devil. Like we're made to want and desire things. Our problem is that we crave the wrong things and we seek to satisfy ourselves with things that will never satisfy us. And I think, you know, those communities tell people just give away parts of your freedom and let us be in charge and let us control how you live and how you read scripture and how you know God. And, and if you just let us be in charge, you'll be happy. And that is, is not the wild and free abundant life that Jesus calls us to. And, you know, I we just have to stop pretending that it's okay. It's not okay there. It's not okay in the Catholic Church to continue to, um, you can't grandfather in a hierarchy that says that men are ontologically different and superior to women. I don't care, like, what kind of language you want to put about it. Now, God will continue to show up because God does continue to show up in broken and even poisonous structures and systems, but to do the work of redeeming, not because those systems in and of themselves are worthy of being redeeming. The peep redeemed. The people are worthy of redemption. But the structures are not okay, and they never have been okay. The thing that I would point out um, for people that I would um, want them to see in this story is that um, white supremacy has a way of constantly morphing yeah. and changing. Just when you think you've you've captured it, you've got a hold on it, you can begin to um, um, limit, even maybe even remove it. It it morphs into something else. But usually, what it morphs into is number one, something that is dehumanizing, both for those who benefit from it and for those who are harmed by it. So in this case, saying that empathy is sinful harms, it dehumanizes those who benefit from white supremacy because it does not allow them to live into their full humanity of being empathetic toward other human beings. And of course, it harms um, especially black and brown people, uh, especially women, because it says don't don't be open to their stories of pain. Don't be don't listen, because if you listen and get into the boat with them, it's going to lead you away from biblical truth, which is nonsense. And I think the other thing that white supremacy is morphing into right now, um, uh, once again, in a new way, it's a philosophy um, in the shape of a theology that allows white people to be both um, 
racist and um, self-justified at the I was same say, time. Racist and innocent. Yes. Right. And uh, and that is really dangerous. Right. Any theology that tells you all the brokenness in the world is somebody else's fault and none of it is yours and all God wants you to do is keep on keeping on and make a little more money if you can. Like any theology that tells you that comes from hell, yeah. right? Like Chris, we, we are redeemed. We are not innocent. And so the reality is, you know, that that's, and, and this is the, where the empathy, because people might just be saying like, okay, well, empathy and sympathy, aren't they like essentially the same thing, right? And, and I can understand that like, the, the rationale for him saying empathy is a sin is he's saying, like, if you over-identify with people, then you're not going to be able to give them the truth. So the unarticulated assumption is we have the truth. And so we have to keep an emotional distance from people because otherwise we will not be able to teach them slash fix them, right? And so this is the problem. And this is why this, this community trying to actually identify with their neighbors is so dangerous because it disrupts this meta-narrative assumption of like, we have the truth. And if everybody would just be like us, or if you can't be like us, just do what we say, then everything would be fine, right? But when you have empathy for someone, when you go in and listen to your story, you cannot help but be opened up to the reality of like, oh, crap, maybe I'm part of the problem. Maybe this person while none of us are completely innocent in any situation, but maybe this person isn't 100% guilty of everything that has happened to them. And maybe, maybe I am called in, maybe God is trying to call another person to take responsibility for their actions, but maybe God is also calling me, right? Maybe it's both. And that's why you got to stop people from identifying. That's why you got to keep sympathy instead of empathy, because you don't want people, I mean, specifically he said, you do not want to so feel for them so much that you can't give them truth. And the reality is none of us have truth. God has truth. Yeah, during um, the movement in the 60s for voting rights, when you have these young Jewish kids from the Northeast attacked on one of the Freedom Rides, and it's on national television, mm-hmm. the nation feels something. Mm-hmm. When um, Medgar Edwards is shot in his driveway and um, you know that he has children, you, you, you feel something. Um, I think p- part of the power um, of the truth of the civil rights movement that it could hold up a mirror to the nation to say, I know you have a certain narrative that you like to tell about the nation, but we want you to see something, and it's not going to make you feel good. Mm-hmm. And I think in, 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 the, in, in the empathy that many people across the country had, um, there was change made. And I think this current manifestation of white supremacy is saying, okay, let's, let's make sure um, that doesn't work anymore, mm-hmm. that people do not identify that essentially white people, white men especially, harden their hearts 
so that um, this truth, this additional truth, just can't find a way yeah. in. And we all know where the phrase hardened hearts shows up in scripture. Mm. And if you're spiritual leader is encouraging you to harden your heart, even if that's just move from empathy, which is too much, to sympathy, which is still love, but is a little... I mean, that's a heart-hardening move. And Pharaoh hardened his heart. in, And then God hardened Pharaoh's heart. And all of that was about being resistant to the liberation movement that God was doing and being resistant to the way that God was overturning mm-hmm. the structures and systems and institutions that some people really liked. And God said, no, like it's not going to work this way anymore. And I think that, you know, this is the, the problem with this unquestioned premise of make America great again is we just assume that the way it was in the past was preferable to God. And that's just a huge assumption. And it's one that we can only make if, as white people, if we are not in real relationships with people of color who are safe enough in those relationships to say, uh, life wasn't better for me in the 60s, friend. Yeah. Right? But if but if you don't know, I mean, if you just are in a circle where you only hear a narrative that reassures you that you and your ancestors and, and all the institutions you love were blameless and innocent. Like, again, the gospel does not convict us of our innocence. The gospel convicts us of our guilt. And it just makes me so sad, so sad for, and we were talking on our Watch walk it, that's about, starting to sound like empathy. Yeah, I, <laughs> yes, and I believe that empathy is oh, not you, a sin. You're, you're I feel something. so sad that, like, it's like we church people are holding the body of Christ hostage, mm. right? Like we are, we ought to be the people who are leading the way at mm-hmm. saying white Christians in particular, we ought to be leading the way at saying like, I know I'm not innocent. I love my ancestors. They're not garbage, but I know they weren't innocent. And I'm here for doing the deep soul wrenching work of looking at the magnitude of my guilt and turning to the Lord and saying, you know, give me not what I deserve, but what I need, which is mercy and give me the grace to turn around and walk in a new way by your strength and not by the power of my desires, right? Like we as white Christians, we should be leading the way and we have forsaken our own spiritual heritage and identity. We've forsaken the very thing that we ought to be bringing to this national conversation. We are. We have thrown out the salt and light that we should be in this cultural moment. And you know what Jesus says about salt that has lost its saltiness? Like, it's just good for nothing but the garbage heap. And I think that's yeah. so much of what we're seeing in the world is that people are not people who are actually full of the spirit of God are not drawn to our churches because our churches are saying there's nothing to see here. Like, And so, and you're pointing out why it's so vital that, you know, people like the two of us not only say why that part of the body of Christ is wrong, we've got to live out something different because there's going to be a generation that looks at the situation at Bethlehem Baptist and say, I don't want to be a part of that. If that's the church, if that's Christianity, peace, I'm out. And they are going to need um, 
a fuller narrative, another narrative. Right. And our job is not to say, well, those guys are screwed up and then carry yeah, on. Well, we've got it all together. Right. No, I that's mean, not what I'm well, saying. Well, and I think the reality is it's easy to look at them and say, that's not it. So then to do the harder work of saying like, okay, well, if it's not that, then what is it? Mm -hmm. And how am I not just knowing but living that out? And I think that's why we are drawn to this very hard, unglorious, unprofitable, small, hidden, sometimes very pathetic feeling work of trying to be used by God to create a healthy and holy multi-ethnic community mm -hmm. because that really is an outpost of the kingdom of God. And it is really hard because you have to surrender not just what is bad, but also some things that in and of themselves were good, right? Like mm -hmm. some, some traditions and customs and preferences and it, like that they, they weren't bad. They weren't evil. But they again, weren't ugly. Like we were saying, you know, concerning marriage, it becomes an environment for our greater sanctification. Right, right. And again, if you are in a community that's telling you that you're good where you are and you don't need to grow and all you need to do is help those, don't be too empathetic with those people, but help them have the truth, then you're not growing explicitly, proudly. You're yeah. saying, I have arrived and now it's my job to bring everybody else up to the where you are. And that's just silly. I mean, mm -hmm. like just theologically, that is silly. And um, again, I don't think, you know, I mean, A, this really, to be fair, is not John Piper. And I don't know how he's really interacting with this, but it is his community. I haven't heard anything from him. Yes. It, it's, it's, you know, he retired, what, a year ago or more. Um, and so, yeah, it's But we got to stop. We got to stop looking at how popular a movement is and then mm. assuming mm. that, okay, that must mean that it's good. No, and the con the the reverse is also not true. You don't look at how small something is and then assume that it's pure and faithful, right? Like we're just going to have to do more discerning difficult work than that. And everybody involved in this story, I believe is a person sincerely trying to follow Jesus. And that's the tragedy, right? Like that is the real tragedy. And some people involved in the story know enough to know better. Right. So I, I feel very differently about the seminary president who is writing an article saying empathy is a sin. Like, you know, because enough they to know would better. not say that about the issue of abortion. They would not say empathy is a sin there. They. I, I oh, we get empathy with the unborn. Correct. Right. I mean, they would say empathy right. with the mother is a sin. Yeah, well, I think what we see here is. Politics looking for theological justification. Right. Well, and you wouldn't say empathy with a police officer is a sin. Correct. Right. I mean, that's the whole point is let's mm -hmm. think about, you know, so mm -hmm. I, anyway, well, we've probably beaten this dead horse sufficiently deader, but um, I, I just, yeah, I mean, it's, it's out there and I think. And people need to know about it. Well, and I think. Because it's, it may not be on the evening news. It may not be something that people encounter. I don't know anytime soon, but it, this idea is going to filter down. Right. And you might not even understand how someone that you're interacting with has been influenced by this Correct. without even their own Correct. awareness of how they've been influenced by it. So I just think, you know. And it comes in very intellectual and theological language. Right. And so for the non-discerning ear, you, you might hear something and go, huh, 
That makes sense. Sounds like they're right. But, you know, the devil comes as an angel of light. And so... Well, and also, this is where I think, like, and and I talked about this a little bit on Sunday in our text, but, like, you know, a word that features prominently in this discussion is doctrine, right? And that they're they're saying, like, your empathy is risking doctrine. And, And not now, but if you're too empathetic, there might come a point where that will corrupt your doctrine. And I just want to say like we are not a doctrine formed people we are a story formed people and one of the reasons that is so is when somebody comes to you and says well empathy is a sin then it's important that you know the story of like well huh i know the story of jesus leaving the splendor and safety and glory of heaven and coming down and living among us and so that doesn't seem to fit with the idea that empathy is a sin even if you have a lot of doctrinal language or you know the story of Acts 2 of people selling what they have and giving to anyone who has need and just say like, okay, but I know that story. So how does that story fit in your doctrine? And people will want to say, well, doctrine first, story second. That's not the way it works. And that was the tension between the early church and the Pharisees or the religious establishment. They had their doctrine and yet the early church had this narrative, this experience of Jesus of Nazareth that they walked with and talked with, who was crucified, he was put in a tomb, and they saw him days later. He taught them for 40 days. They saw him ascend to heaven, and then they had this experience of the Spirit on the day of Pentecost. So now they're having to um, work on their doctrine about who is this Jesus? Mm -hmm. It's Is he... God? I mean, that, that, that was a lot that of work. That did not fit with their doctrine, it but it did, did not, fit with yes. the experience of life. And I would also just say, like, you tell me objectively, given a reading of the book of Acts and the book of Revelation about what the fullness of the community of God is going to look like with, like, people of every nation and tongue and people bowing down to the lamb who was slain that's enthroned. You tell me, where does that seem to be manifested more? Is it a movement of people of every race and tongue on the streets crying out for justice for an unarmed man who was murdered by the, by the people in authority? Or does it look like people who are sitting in the pews saying, well, the, the authorities were right. And he, I mean, you know, like if you know the story of Jesus, it's hard to say, well, the spirit of God isn't out there on the streets. The spirit of God is in here in this room and justifying law enforcement. Like, and this is the thing. Am I saying that all law enforcement people are garbage and they don't know Jesus? No, I'm saying like we are all yes. caught in a structure mm-hmm. that is in different ways oppressing and dehumanizing all of us. And having empathy for the officers doesn't mean I say whatever they do is right. It means they also are caught up and dehumanized in the system, which is why the system and the structure has to go, and we need to build something different based on the values of the kingdom of heaven, based on the values of laying down our lives for one another, not killing one another. That's not how the gospel works. Redemptive violence does not work. Now, law enforcement is built around the concept of, concept of redemptive violence. Good guys with guns. Good guys taking lives of bad guys. That is the myth of redemptive violence Our society in America is built on that myth. And you know what? America is not a Christian nation. It's, you can believe in that, but our central myth is the idea of a good guy without a gun, a good guy who doesn't take the lives of the evildoers, but gives his life for the sake of the evildoers. And if you don't believe in that, like I get it, it's pretty freaking unbelievable. But if you don't believe in that, then you don't believe in Jesus. And that's not my problem. Anyway.
done for today. <laughs> for today. Well, let's talk about what we're preaching this Sunday because we're preaching the same thing I once know, again. It's exciting. It's exciting. Yeah. <laughs> um, so tell, tell tell anyone who happens to still be listening. What what are we preaching? Well, we're preaching Second um, Corinthians what four. Uh, we have this treasure in jars of clay. We're pressed but not crushed, persecuted, not abandoned, struck down but not destroyed. Um, we have this treasure of the gospel, the treasure of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit on the inside of us. And so we're looking at the subject of resilience in, in this season because so often, you know, there, there, I mean, there's a lot of talk about res- resilience um, um, in, in, the, in, the, in the greater culture, yes. And it's about grit. It's about being stronger, trying harder. And um, believe in yourself. And believe in yourself. You can do it if you just try. Manifest it. Manifest it. <laughs> You're doing pretty good. I mean, I live here. You should um, uh, <laughs> I you live be here. a motivational but, guru. I mean, yeah. I, anyway, um, and, and we're talking about how different Paul's message, which again, you got to skip it. Like you got to just skip over the plain sense of what he's saying, mm-hmm. saying we have a treasure in a jar of clay. So that means like the We meat, are weak. Right we, we and weak. impermanent mm-hmm. and and not like what is mm-hmm. what is most um, worthy is in us but not of us right so there's this inherent humility in in that that you have to ignore and this idea that he's saying like some super bad stuff has happened to us like mm-hmm. some super super bad like not hashtag blessed stuff has happened to us and so if if the way you discern that someone is full of the spirit of God and being faithful is by looking to see how hashtag blessed they are and how many followers they are and how much influence they have and how much power they have. You would have totally overlooked Paul and the early church and they were absolutely doing God's will and they were getting their butts kicked by the world most days. And it looked like a waste of time, except that it wasn't. And Paul was saying that the treasure that was in them wasn't getting them out of those situations, but was meeting them in those situations. And that, you know, the people who are selling you something will say, just come in here, do what we say, think what we tell you to think, and nothing bad will ever happen to you. Or if it does, you will be able to have a comeback story. Knock down seven times, get up eight, right? And Paul, I mean, whatever, like all of us, Paul ends up dead, but does not die peacefully in his sleep of old age, right? And so you just, you have to kind of ignore the story to keep buying into this comfortable lie that everything's okay and just keep trying to win capitalism and that's what gives Jesus glory. Like, I mean, that is not what Paul is telling us. He is saying, like Kate, what's her last name? Shoot. Her book is Kate Bowler, and and her book is great. It's it's called Everything Happens for a Reason and Other Christian Lies I've Loved, and now she has a podcast called Everything Happens. And just this idea that, like, everything happens, and everything that happens happens to people that God loves. And it's not – there isn't this hierarchy of the blessed and the cursed and the loved and the unloved. Everything happens to people God loves, and the promise of the gospel is that we can – find Jesus in it, we can be more than conquerors. So not conquerors, but something more than that. Um, and that's what Paul is testifying in this, in this yeah, passage. Yeah, the society is preaching to us, you can make it because you're so strong. And what Paul is saying in 2 Corinthians, no, 
you will make it because Christ is so strong. And what the society is saying is like, if, you know, if public schools aren't good enough, then what God wants is for you to put your kid in a private Christian school. And if the world isn't safe, what God wants you is to get guns and make yourself safe. So what, what marketplace Christianity teaches you is there's trouble in this world, but not for you. Not if you play it smart the way we tell you to. And what the gospel calls us to is to enter into the trouble and brokenness of the world and be light and be salt and be hope and be empathetic what? and co-suffer with people because suffering produces endurance and endurance yes. produces character and character produces hope and hope and in that will same, not disappoint. And in that same text from Corinthians that we're preaching, Paul says something like, Death is at work in you, in us, but life in you, because we are we're suffering, we're we're going through hardship, but it's for your benefit, and mm-hmm. so we don't we don't deny we don't run away from pain, we don't run away from suffering, um, because we know that God can and will use it. And what is happening is not if you're full of Jesus someday somebody's going to make a lifetime movie about you, right. right? Like that's not it. And so sometimes to the eyes of the world, your life is going to look small and unimpressive and dare I say, wasted, like you could have been somebody if only. And I mean, and you just, this world is passing away and you don't get to look like a superstar in both worlds, but you can, you have to decide, like, do you want to look like something or do you want to be something? And the way to being something in the kingdom of God is small hidden lost is entering into suffering is going after the one and leaving the 99 is being the yeast that's worked through the loaf it's being willing to lay down your life so that others might live like that's that's it and and again we just are so in love with the myth of redemptive violence that we say lay down your life to take a life instead of like no laying down your life to give your life bearing witness for what is to come um, so what is to come is we're ending this podcast. And I just want you to know that Yolanda's making signals at me to wrap it up. So it's not <laughs> like I'm cutting him off. He's saying we're done. So we're done. If you want to hear um, what is happening at Dorida and be part of their worship service, you can join them in the sanctuary at 1030. Um, you can find out where that sanctuary is by going to their website, deridaprez.org, which is D-E-R-I-T-A. I heard somebody say Derida on the radio this week, and they just said it wrong. Like Derida? They said Derida. It was a problem. Anyway, it's Derida. I've heard people say that, and I was like, no, it's Derida. D-E-R-I-T-A, prez.org. Um, or you can worship with them on their YouTube channel where it's posted, and you can get um, the back catalog of Yolando's sermons on their Podbean podcast, which is the Dorada Church podcast. And if you want to know what is happening at The Grove or find out more about our community, you can go to our website, which is thegrovecharlotte.org. You can join us for worship with a mask on in the sanctuary at 10 o'clock on Sundays um, or on the live stream, which is on our Facebook page, The Grove Church in Charlotte. There's lots of Grove churches, so try to come to ours. And you can um, check out the sermons on the YouTube channel. We have a YouTube channel where the sermons are up. And the podcast is The Grove Church Podcast, which you can find on iTunes. Everywhere. Anywhere. Wherever. Wherever. You get your podcast. (laughs) Thanks for listening. We will rant at you next week. 